Hey, thanks for being a part of the conversation. Let's do some pod crashing. Episode number 276 is with Marcy Penna from the podcast Sweet Daddy Grace. I'm doing good. The journey to put this podcast together, explain to me the, the seed and how it grew. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, first of all, I don't know that it was really my idea. <laughs> so uh, Daddy Grace is somebody who has been in my life and has been around my life for as long as I can remember. And I always found him to be, you know, a fascinating, almost kind of scary, mystical creature. Um, but my interest in him, you know, grew increasingly over the years, especially once I realized that he was a figure that was beyond just the town that I was born and raised in. And so one day I was visiting I went to go visit his grave just because I was trying to understand why this guy keeps popping up in my life. And I heard him say, tell my story. Mm. So um, I tried to ignore that. And that went on for about three years. And then finally, uh, a book that I had of him fell right in front of my face off my bookshelf. And I was like, "Okay, I guess it's time for me to tell this story. Oh, man, I totally get into that (laughs) spiritual walk right there, because, yeah, there are so many times that writers and even authors, they'll ignore moments like that. And they and and all of a sudden they think they're going to silence it. It's not. It's going to be with you for many, many years. I love that journey. (laughs) So it was quite crazy. And I didn't I didn't anticipate it (laughs) to put it into words, though. I mean, because, I mean, it's one thing to to write it out. It's one thing to do a podcast, because I always believe that when when, when you're podcasting, I can hear your pitch, volume and tone. I can hear your inflection in writing it and, and, and to plan for it. What voices did you hear? Yeah, writing was a little bit different because you're absolutely right. It's one thing the way that we talk. It's another thing the way that we write for somebody who's going to be reading your material. But in podcasting, you know, it's a totally different approach. So I worked with a team. Um, I had a great team. Shout out to them, Marissa Brown, Daryl Stewart. Uh, We worked with Darren Burnett. And uh, the team was just phenomenal in helping me put it together. And, And really drawing on, you know, a lot of different voices, not just my own, but people who could speak to the times mm-hmm. that Daddy Grace lived in, but also people, some people who knew him or people who were involved, a lot of periphery people, because, of course, he's been dead since 1960. Wow. Wow. But his his legacy, though, began way before that, did it not? Yeah, no, it did. He came to the United States in 1904. And well, he actually came back and forth a few times before he decided to settle. And uh, he started his church and the United House of Prayer. He started at first in West Wareham, Massachusetts. And, you know, once he did that, he, he started the church in 1919 and then he wrote bylaws so you know his legacy is really one that um has spanned not only the area that he grew up in but around the country he ended up with over 300 churches and millions of members of his church so his journey and his legacy was uh something that did not die when he did this was before there was a mega church he he had a mega church he did he did Yeah, I like to think of him as one of the forerunners or pioneers of Mm -hmm. a megachurch. I mean, nobody kind of did it like Daddy Grace. He was a very eccentric character. He was really flamboyant. I mean, he would literally, when he would go to the bank, he would have his attendants roll out the red carpet for him. (laughs) He would walk into the bank with like bags of money. Um, But people just adored him. He, you know, he started out 
he had a really interesting method. He knew, he understood marketing. He understood, you know, how to get the word out. So he would have people, when he would go to different towns, he would have people go before him. They would drive in, you know, a gospel car that had writing all over it that would let people know that he was coming to town. They would set up musicians on street corners. Um, they would take out full page ads in local newspapers and let people know he was going to be in town. So he started out with just tents. You know, just revival tents and people would come and then he would do these massive baptisms in public spaces like lakes, rivers, oceans. Uh, in New York, he'd do them by fire hose. And, you know, that was quite the spectacle. And so people he must have been incredibly charismatic and powerful because people believed in him and they just yeah. followed him. Was it was he following the word of God by, by the Bible or was it his interpretation of what was going on? No, he was definitely a man of the Bible. He knew his Bible. He he was uh, not, you know, somebody who was running around just trying to steal people's money or, you know, uh, he wasn't a charlatan. Um, he, he really did believe. In, and for him, he was actually told to come to the United States. Uh, his hair caught on fire when he was in Cape Verde, West Africa. And uh, he didn't want to come back here. And, and, you know, as he told it, God told him that if he didn't come to the United States, all of his hair would be gone. And he loved his hair. So, you know, he followed the Bible. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. You know, there are uh, some some um, some I guess we would, I don't want to call them allegations, but some mm -hmm. stories, some whispers about him and women. Um, but in terms of, you know, the life that he lived, he did live an upright life and he did follow the word of God and he believed in it and he didn't try to make himself into, you know, Jesus or into God. He didn't say he was God. He simply said he was God's prophet. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand that part of it because I, I, I'm part of a mega church and, you know, and we we're always called a cult. Did, did, did he ever go through anything like that? All the time, all yep. the time. I mean, if you look at some of the historical data, a lot of, uh, you know, press covered him because he was so unique and he, he, he didn't back down from a little bit of controversy. So if you look at, you know, the articles that were written in the New York Times or in Ebony or the L.A. Times, you know, people would say things like the cult leader. Yeah. And, you know, people, even people in my own family, a lot of people distance themselves from him because they didn't want to be associated with that. And they thought that, you know, he wasn't really a man of God. And, you know, I, I would imagine that that must have been a difficult path for him. But he always looked above it and just continued to, you know, to do the work that he felt that he was called to do. You know, it's really interesting. First of all, the name of the podcast is Sweet Daddy Grace. You can hear it on iHeartRadio. One of the things that fascinates me about this, and, and Stephen Furtick talks about this a lot, when you're in charge of, let's say, 300 churches, like you said, the energy that he must give off, who's giving it back to him, if you know what I mean? Because when you're spreading that word up there on a Sunday or a Monday night, and, and, and it's got to come back into you somehow, some way. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I was trying to do with this podcast was uncover who he was as a person. Yeah. The public persona is, you know, that's what everybody knew. But who was there for him, you know, when he was home mm -hmm. by himself? And, you know, from what I can gather, he did pour out a lot of energy. Uh, when he first started out, he used to do a lot of healing. He did a lot of laying hands on people. But he stopped doing that over the years because it was draining. Yes. It was really draining and people were, you know, sucking the life out of him. So uh, for him, I think he really got his strength from the church. I think the energy that he gave out, they gave it back to him. The love, the adoration. He did have, you know, some of his family was really close to him. He had a couple of sisters who worked with him, a couple of nephews um, and nieces that worked closely with him. But really his 
family, his inspiration, his, you know, who gave him energy were the church members, yeah. his elders and all the people that, you know, he was around, surrounded by on a daily basis. Yeah, because when you when you deal with the church, there's going to be emotional vampires and you've got to surround yourself. Now, writing is one of my ways of picking myself back up again. Did he leave any journals behind? You know, he didn't leave any journals, but he did write to his congregation. So even today, the Bishop of the United House of Prayer for All People still continues this practice uh, where they write a weekly letter to their congregants. So I do have a book. It was given to me by one of my cousins that um, is not a public book. It was published by the church. And that's a list of uh, a, a collection, I should say, of all of his writings that he did to the church. So he didn't write a, a memoir, which I really wish that he had, um, but he didn't, you know, but that gave a little bit of insight into who he was and how he thought and, you know, what was important to him. He also was a musician. Um, I think that's also, yeah, I think that's another way that he got energy. He played the piano and he did so for a very long time until his fingernails became too long for him to, to hit the keys. So I think that creative outlet, you know, they said that he wrote music. I think that we can gleam a little bit about who he is through those writings and through those recordings. Speaking of music, when you were putting the podcast together or when you do, when you go in that studio, are you listening to music beforehand? Because there seems to be when, with the way you speak and the way you share the story, there's there's kind of a, mel- a melodic kind of a vibe to it. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm a music person by trade. I'm a DJ oh. and I'm also an ethnomusicologist. So music is my first love. And it was really important to me because I knew it was important to Daddy Grace also that music, you know, that was one of the ways that he really touched and, and, and um, was able to connect with his, his congregants, with mm-hmm. people in general, was through the music. So I knew that music was a central component of his mission and of the entire church. So I wanted to make sure that that was weaved throughout. And here's one way that, you know, Daddy, and Gra- Daddy Grace and I um, shared a similar love, right? And I was fortunate to work with a phenomenal sound designer, John Washington, who helped design the sound. We collaborated mm. on the theme song um, because I had some ideas of what I wanted it to sound like. And, and he just took that and ran with it. <laughs> and then we also, yeah, he did. And then we also collaborated with a Cape Verdean musician who's based in Portugal, Enrique Silva. And he created scoring that brought us back to Daddy Grace's, you know, childhood and in his ancestral home and his cultural music. So it, music played a central role in, in this podcast. It really did. Did you have to get permission from the church to be able to do this? No. Really? I mean, because he... Well, I mean, I don't want to give away the podcast, but yeah, because yeah. there is a family connection, um, I, you know, somebody can't tell you that you can't tell somebody that you know a story, right? right I right. mean, this is somebody in my family. I had permission from the family, and that was good enough for me. But I will say that the church, because uh, the, the podcast is not about the church. It's about him. Right. But of right. course, the pod, you know, the church, it, it features largely because it was such, you know, it was his life's work. But I did have I did run into some challenges there because although I went to many of the churches, um, Charlotte is one of the biggest congregations. I spent a couple of a couple of trips down there. I went yeah. to South Carolina. Yeah. I went to Harlem. I went to Newark. I went to Massachusetts. Um, you know, so I did spend time getting to know members, but nobody would go on record. Like nobody, nobody would allow me to record them. And that was frustrating. And, I, you know, I kept kind of saying to them, why not? If you guys don't tell your own story, people are just going to continue 
to think that you are a cult and that you're hiding something. Mm -hmm. And this is an incredible story. I mean, like millions of people have benefited from this church because Daddy Grace wasn't just about, you know, the church. He was also about teaching people cooperative economics and how to build better lives for themselves. So the influence is really wide. And I feel that it's important that they tell their story. But um, they they didn't want to go on record. But you're so right about that because when you share the story, that to me is community. And when you take that community, you, you reach beyond the four walls of the church. And it, and it really does sound like that that's what this church is all about in the way, because I'm, I'm here in Charlotte. I mean, I, I know um, what, what the impact is. And, and, and you come you know have been here and everything like that. You know what it's like to be in the Bible Belt and how serious they take yeah. the word. Yes. Yes, they do. And, you know, I mean, it's it's a community. It's not just, you know, a house that you go to on a Sunday and, you know, I don't know, you know, pray or talk about your ills or. No, it's a it's a real community. I mean, people's lives are built around this church. They it's generational. They marry other people who are church members. They work together. You know, people have built businesses together. People have learned how to build businesses through the church structure. And, you know, that's really, really, really powerful. We we often talk about, you know, the ways in which education, things like that, that people advance themselves. But people don't often look about look at these church structures and see how building community in this kind of way is, is another path to success and is another path to, you know, really uh, changing your life. Did he have a, a love for the land? And the reason why I bring that up is because a coffee farm in Brazil, a chicken farm in Cuba, that to me, those th- both of those serve the earth as well. And, you know, great mother earth, you know, g- is so giving as well. Well, you know, I think as somebody who was Cape Verdean, uh, you know, for those that are not familiar with it, it's it's a place that has a lot of agricultural challenges mm-hmm. to it. Um, there are times where we've had great drought where it didn't rain for 10 or 20 years. And so food has been a central theme for all Cape Verdeans. You know, a lot of people have died of starvation. So I, I do think that Daddy Grace, we have a saying called Peinachon, which means like your foot is on the ground. And you know, Cape Verdeans in general are very rooted in the earth because it's so essential for survival. You know, whether the crops came or didn't come, whether it rained or didn't come, you know, you're constantly at the mercy of the weather and the land for your own survival. And of course, that's changed now. But in Daddy Grace's time, um, people were really dependent on those things. So I think for him, this idea around growing your own food mm-hmm. and being able to you know, sustain yourself was really important. Um, if you look even at the churches, people that do know the house of prayer, if they've never been in a building, they oftentimes know the food. Uh, there's a kitchen in almost every single United House of Prayer around the country. And, you know, when I was growing up, if you didn't have money, they would feed you for free. Yep. And that remains and still is today. You can go there and get a fresh, hot meal yep. for free if you are broke. And I think that his childhood really marked him, you know, this idea of people having to leave the country and immigrate because they were starving. You know, that was something that I think really drove him in his ways in which he built this system to care for his children, as he called them. Oh, my wife and I know that kitchen all too well, because the thing about it was, was it was the preacher would go and go and go. And we're thinking, we got to get, get that kitchen started here, man, because people are going to be coming here, knocking on our door to have lunch. And and I mean, but we, we served in that kitchen so many times. 
Oh wow, that's so cool! Yeah, and, and what's your favorite dish? What what Lee? What did we have? We, uh, there was always macaroni and cheese. There was always green beans. There was always God, I, mean, I mean the chef there would always do like, like like a Salisbury steak type. I mean it was it was but it was but that's where we learned how to you know to serve the community through through the shelters because then we went to the men's shelter and served there for years because it, because wow. it, it it's a side of the community that people are ignoring and you can't do that when I I think of them as being geniuses because if some Something ever happened to this nation? The smartest people on the planet are the ones that are going to survive, uh, that are survivals, and and they and they can survive. And I'm going to be running to them to learn how to do it. Yes, I'm with you. I'll be right there. <laughs> yeah. But no, when you speak of that kitchen, see, a lot of people don't know that about that kitchen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when when I was a kid, that's because I grew up right around the corner from the House of Prayer. You know, that was like a thing for us. We we would always hear the music. My family told me not to go in the church, um, so I was I never attended a service when I was a kid. But the music was always, you know, we we would hear it all the way down the block, and you'd smell the food. Yeah. So we kids, we we'd get together, we'd put together our little, you know coins, whatever we had, and we'd go in, and they always served us. They always served us with a smile. And so, you know, it was nourishment, not just for the, the, the body, but also for the soul. It is, yep. And I think, yeah, Daddy Grace really understood that. He really understood that that was one way to uh, get to people and to appeal to their spiritual nature. Create the conversation. I'm going to provide the place. Just get that conversation started. Yes. <laughs> so what have you personally learned from this? Because really, you're going back to the origin. You're going back to a time in history and his journey up to 1960 that none of us know because they don't preach it. Um, you know, and, and, I, and that's the thing about it. I, I just wish that we could learn from those that were there during the hardest times. I mean, look at depression that, that, that he grew through and, and the rebuilding of the nation. Yeah, I mean, it really was uh, a difficult time. And, you know, we oftentimes, especially during the pandemic and after the pandemic, you know, we look at life and we're like, oh, this is the worst time in human history. But when you look back and you see all of the things that people have gone through before us, you realize that we actually kind of have it somewhat easier in some ways, in some ways. So, you know, for me, this this entire journey was way more emotional than I ever anticipated. Mm -hmm. I thought this was going to be easy. I thought I already knew everything. You know, um, but it turned out that I didn't know everything. It turned out that I learned a lot. It turned out that I had to confront my own sort of anxiety around exposing myself and my spiritual side, which is, you know, a private, something very private. So this was about my family also. So I had to expose my family. We had to talk about secrets. There were a lot of things that I just out of respect for people I couldn't put in the podcast because I don't want to put all of their business out there. But, you know, it was, as I said, it was much more intense than I anticipated. And what I learned most of all, you know, just from a general sense, is that people, especially people from the previous generations, didn't talk about their past. They didn't talk about their stories. They didn't share. We live in a world where everybody posts everything on social media, like Mm -hmm. everything. Oh, I ate this today. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) this is what I'm wearing. But back then, people didn't talk about things. So what I found is that you know, there's a lot of history that can get lost when we don't tell our own stories. And a story like this, which is so significant, somebody who became one of the wealthiest black people in America, one of the wealthiest preachers ever, that story is like, not not that many people know about it. So it could have easily gotten lost and just stayed within the church, which is so insular. So the biggest lesson for me is that you have to tell your own story, if not for your own you know, for your own family, your own legacy, but definitely for the world. And if you've done something great, if you don't toot your own horn about it, 
Nobody will. My mantra has always been, share your story or someone will write it for you. I, I live by that every single day. You've got to come back to this show anytime in the future. I love your voice. I love the way that you're reaching out and you're teaching a generation that needs to know. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure being here. I would love to come back anytime that you've had and me. And when I come down to Charlotte, I'll say hello. We got to get together. We got to go to the kitchen. We, let's go do it. Let's, let's go do serve. It. <laughs> let's go do it. You have a brilliant day today. Okay, Marcy? You too. Thank you so much.